Welcome to Book Tour, two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Excited to bring you tonight an interview with author Paul Tremblay. We recently uh, reviewed his book, Growing Things and Other Stories, and have done a ton of stuff in the past. And tonight, we will have him on to talk a bit about, I'm guessing, that book and maybe uh, other, other stuff, too. You know what happens when you get old? You do things like you realize it's been four years since you've had Paul Tremblay on the podcast. Yeah. And, and I'm sure yeah. if, if, you know, just in casual conversation, if we were talking about it, we both would have said probably, I would have definitely said, yeah, it's been like two years, right? Yeah, last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah, four years. So uh, lots to talk about with Paul. But first, uh, Rob's going to give you his bio. All right. If you didn't listen to the other, the Growing Things uh, episode or you're just tuning in now because you um, want to hear Paul talk, uh, here's a quick bio. Paul Tremblay is the author of Disappearance at Devil's Rock and the World Fantasy Award nominated and Bram Stoker Award winning Head Full of Ghosts. Head Full of Ghosts has been optioned by Focus Features. He's also the author of the novels The Little Sleep, No Sleep Till Wonderland, Swallowing a Donkey's Eye, and Floating Boy and the Girl Who Couldn't Fly, which is co-written with Stephen Graham Jones. Oh, Cabin at the End of the World is not listed on that bio, but that's uh, that's a banger that came out recently, too. Very much so. Paul, thanks so much for coming back on and talking to us on Booked. It's been a surprisingly long amount of time, but it's uh, it's always nice to have you here with us. Thank you, Rob and Liv. I am excited to be back. Hopefully, uh, lightning doesn't strike the house and we'll be able to finish this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not being like metaphorical or that I've, I've threatened <laughs> a deity or a deity. I haven't threatened a deity or anything like that. It's just happens to be storming. That's uh yeah, and you're like we were talking before we started recording about uh, I don't know if it's the uh, is the Northeast just constantly like beset by like big storms because the last <laughs> person we talked to from that area had a power outage in the middle of our interview. So <laughs> the Northeast is surprisingly humid in the summer. Like you know when people come from <laughs> other places, like they're like oh we always assume like the Northeast is you know cooler, but no, not in the summer. I mean it's obviously probably getting worse too. Uh, but yeah, no, summers, summers, man, they're, they're just as humid. I mean, clearly not as hot as like DC or, or North Carolina or something, but we have a few of those days. I don't know. It's just something else for us New Englanders to complain about us charming New Englanders <laughs> that no one ever gets tired of. <laughs> um, so uh, I have a very important question I want to start this interview out with. Um, oh, boy. Because the, the timeliness of this. So today is July 22nd. So first of all, I want to congratulate you on um, having been published in the book anthology exactly six years ago today. Oh, wow. Six years ago today. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We want to give you an opportunity in case you had like a pre-prepared speech or something you wanted to give. <laughs> well, th this is weird because... I, I shit you not, I was walking my dog today, um, and this was after spending a weekend at a local, a very small local convention called Nikon, which is essentially like a summer camp for horror writers. Like, it's only 200 people, there's barely any programming, and there's probably a bottle of whiskey for every bottle of person that's at <laughs> the convention. Um, huh. But anyway, so I was with my very good friend, John Langan, who's a great writer, and I was walking my dog, and I thought about the story that was in Bound. I, I don't know why it like, just popped into my head. It's like, man, that's like the only time John and I have argued about a story that one of us has written because he really didn't like the story. I was like personally upset by it. Yeah, we have to revisit that with him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so because uh, I was going to mention Warmed and Bound was released seven years ago today. Oh, I'm sorry. Book so, podcast. Oh, yeah. So which one? Geez, which one did I write the? Which? Yeah. <laughs> 
So you gave us uh, scenes from the city of garbage oh, and the city okay. of clay. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I mixed up the titles, but that's yeah. The book podcast book was the story. That's a story that John and I argued over. Really? Um, I, yeah. This I, podcast is off to a roaring start. Well, no, it's no, okay because I want to get John Langan on and ask him what the argument yeah. was. Well, I, yeah. I think it was also an early draft. I think he was. I don't know, for some reason, he was a little bothered by my using like real life people uh mm, fictionalizing okay. like a particular person or uh, maybe it wasn't so much the use of them it was ascribing ascribing motivations to maybe like some of the movies or the roles that they were doing that i don't know like that that, that that's kind of like his thing sometimes like he gets upset when people ascribe motivations to writers or maybe that's me i don't know it was a while ago <laughs> and we haven't found since we, we sent each other flowers and we were all good <laughs> you guys made you guys made up after that we're glad to hear it yeah, I totally, I totally just sold another copy of that book for you, haven't I? Well, that would be the first in a while, I yes. think. So, yeah. it's, <laughs> yes. it's, um, it's awesome that you were thinking about it just today, yeah, un 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 unaware yeah. that it was the sixth anniversary. Yeah, unaware. I'm just shocked that you walk your own dog, but I guess we'll get to that a little bit later. <laughs> so we have okay. some yeah. questions about your about your dog walking. Um, something came up before we started, so I'm not going to try to like figure out a way to shoehorn this question in, but sure. we were talking about Amazon bios and whose responsibility it is. So can we talk a little bit about what the assumptions are that we at Booked and other people who aren't, you know, published writers have about like what changes for you when you sign with a big publisher, like what's taken off your shoulders versus the guy who's self-publishing or who's publishing with a small press, I guess. Cause I was surprised. I mean, I'll, I'll spoil the the first question for you, I guess, is that you're responsible for your own Amazon bio. And I was I was a little surprised by that. <laughs> yeah, I mean. It, so I think especially how publishing is sort of I don't know, mutated or is continuing to evolve or devolve, depending on your point of view, um, I think a lot more of the a lot more of the publicity is expected of the author and frankly, is necessary, um, you know, especially since so many of the you know, so many of the publishers and their imprints have, have really, you know, consolidated. You know, I know that the poor publicity, you know, folk have, you know, so many authors and so many books to deal with. Um, you know, it, it's just got to be overwhelming. So, you know, I know every author I, I've talked to that works with a big publisher, um, you know, they all have their frustrations with publicity. Everyone thinks that, you know, not enough is being done for them. You know, it's... But it's also as a writer, I try to remind myself, it's very difficult to, to know exactly everything that's going on behind the scenes. So no, I, I definitely have to take care of my own Amazon page. Um, you know, I, I pretty much write the copy for, you know, like the, the summary copy for the books, or at least I have to make a, uh, a go at it. And then the publisher or my editor will usually fix it up and we'll pass it back and forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, pretty much anything you see in the book, has to pretty much come from the author. I mean, maybe it's different for like Don Winslow and you know the you know, <laughs> the, the you know the top bestsellers. I mean, I mean it, it says national bestseller on uh, on my you know Growing Things cover, which is very cool. But I mean, so a national bestseller is someone like me who had Cabin at the End of the World one week on the LA Times you know bestsellers list and one week <laughs> and one week on the USA Today bestsellers list. Um, yeah, I, I believe me, I'm not complaining. I mean, the, the book, you know, sold more than any other book that I've ever had, like in its first year. 
Um, I mean, a head full of ghosts has been like this really cool, consistent seller. Um, so, I mean, that's so, certainly sold more copies total, but I mean, cabin sold a lot, you know, for, for me the most right away. Um, so I guess some of what I'm talking around with is, you know, it's funny, like this weekend I spent, I mentioned I was at a, you know, horror convention. It's really nice to have people say, you know, congratulate me on everything that's going, you know, everything seems to be going well, which it is. And it's very nice. Mm -hmm. There's a weird part of me. Maybe it's just like, I don't know, the puritanical New England upbringing, where it's just like guilt around, <laughs> guilt around every corner. Um, I sometimes almost feel like, geez, uh, I, I worry that people think I'm selling and making more than I do. And I also worry that like, if I were to tell them <laughs> the exact numbers, I would be like crushing dreams. I mean, I'm certainly not going to cry poor mouth. I mean, the, the the books have sort of changed my life and has certainly have changed what, what I can do, particularly in how I can serve my, my two children. Um, but there's also a reason why I haven't quit my high school teaching job. Uh, <laughs> I still need it, especially, especially with, you know, college tuition payments, you know, eight years of college tuition payments looming. Um, you know, maybe, maybe that changes and I can, I could write full time if like a movie were to happen or something like that. But I don't know. I mean, <laughs> If you want like the middle class house lifestyle, you know, own a house lifestyle, um, it's very hard to make a living as a writer. You know, if you want to maintain that lifestyle, I mean, if I was just living by myself in an apartment, hell yeah, I'd be, I'd be fine. Um, again, not, not complaining. I just feel like I'm just sharing, like, you know, trying to just share some info. Um, I guess that answers sort of part of the original question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will, so I will say though, uh, what, what the publicists can do, what the publicists have done for me that I know I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't able to do when I was just like publishing with a smaller publisher, right? Like, you know, so with this, the last couple of books, I've gotten a GQ review and a GQ interview, you know, and those big mainstream, um, those big mainstream venues, I know the publishers, uh, publicist, you know, pitches the hell out of those places, you know, and she isn't always... And they're not always successful. I mean, if they get one or two, that's a success these days, you know, especially with new papers. We're going to have several follows up, follow ups to oh, that. Yeah, sure. um, I'd like to jump back to, if it's okay, uh, when you said that you write the, um, basically the synopsis that is on Amazon. Um, Livius and I have, have been having these interesting conversations about those recently because um, we often find, so first of all, because we review the books and we know we're going to read them no matter what, we don't read the synopsis Right. before we go in and read the book. So we're reading them after the fact when we're reading them on the podcast to start talking about the book. And we're like, well, this doesn't sound anything like what we're, <laughs> what we're reading. And so we've been kind of breaking down recently. I know this is a huge me talking a lot. Um, we've been breaking down recently, like you have to write it in a way where it's not for the person that read the book. It's for the person who you want to read the book. Right. And so do you, is there a, like, since you've written at least, I'm guessing, a couple of these what is the mindset you get into to like summarize your book like that do you want to tease or like even kind of maybe spoil things because they don't know it's being spoiled or is it that really do you not put that much thought in <laughs> no well first I, I have to get into like a self-loathing and hatred minds mind space because oh, i hate it it's like the worst <laughs> honestly it's like the worst task i hate writing uh like the jacket copy or the catalog copy but you know again it's the finished product that you see on the book is, you know, been edited and, and, you know, there are tweaks suggested by my editor. She, I mean, she does a wonderful job, but usually I'm tasked with doing like the first go around. Um, so yeah, I mean, for me, the biggest thing I try to, 
try to do is avoid the spoilers that I, I think are important, you know, cause you do have to give like a little bit of, you know, find what you think might be a hook. Yeah. Um, and actually with cabin, it was both hard and easy with cabin at the end of the world, because I essentially just summarized the first chapter because I felt like anything that happened after that was too much of, was too much of a giveaway, at least, you know, personally for me, you know, I didn't want readers necessarily going in knowing anything about anything else about the invaders besides the fact that there were invaders mm-hmm. in the beginning. Um, yeah, I mean, the, in the short story collection, in some ways, it's a little bit easier, but also it was even more of a pain in the ass because you end up having to summarize, you know, you know, like four or five stories. You know, I felt like that takes right. almost as long as just summarizing a novel, but it doesn't. So again, these are <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful problem to have. Don't get me wrong. It's just that I do find it hard. You know, because the you know we all have a whiny writer inside of us, and I think most of us whiny writers are like, I already wrote the book. I don't want to write a summary. <laughs> um, <laughs> At least, at least that's my whiny writer in my head. Well, wow, he sounds like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know when we complain about those, we're actually complaining about often the author themselves. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, I mean, so, right. I mean, I guess this is anecdotal in my, you know, in my experience, but I'd be shocked to find, like, again, unless it's like someone who's a consistent bestseller. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think Neil Gaiman is writing his own copy. In fact, I can tell you that he's not. Um, but, you know, for the rest of us, you know, even the people who, you know, sell pretty well and, you know, get good press, um, you know, it's still a battle from book to book. I, um, going back to, to landing bigger interviews, um, I have a coworker who's a pretty big fan of yours. So the day we were emailing about this, she came into work and she said, how's it going? And I said, uh, I said, good. I said, uh, got a Paul Tremblay interview. And she goes, oh, yeah, NPR. And I was like, oh, no, nice. no, book podcast. <laughs> like, I just felt like she got really excited. She's like, "Oh yeah, I saw that he's on NPR," and I was like, "That's that's not that's not what I what I meant what I, what I meant on our podcast." Yeah, so thank you for keeping us in mind after all the big yeah. interviews. So we appreciate that. Oh sure, like I said, you guys, I consider you guys friends, and this is fun. So, and it's this is very relaxed. Like I'm like stressed out when I do the other stuff a little bit. Well, thank you. All right, since uh, since. Growing Things is the thing that uh, is most recent, even though it's been a couple books since we've talked to you. Uh, we'll kind of focus on that really quick. Um, okay. Is this a collection that you've been building for a while, or was there a specific reason that the collection comes out now? Sure. Um, th- a little bit of both. I mean, it's been a while since I had a, a collection, so I had a bunch of short stories. I mean, there's 19 of them in this one with only three repeats from the previous collection. You know, so that's still 16 stories that were haven't been collected yet. Um, I, it's funny, part of me <laughs> wanted to try to build in a little bit of a buffer to give me more time with like novels. Cause I know, you know, my publisher would like me to, to write a novel every year, every 15 months. And I found that extremely difficult to keep up with. <laughs> um, so my, my big idea was like, okay, so a head full of ghosts and disappearance of devil's rock. That was a two book deal. Uh, when that was done, um, I was off deal, so I had to pitch my editor, you know, and they, they wanted to work with me again, which is great. Um, I pitched them uh, the collection idea with a, another novel. And, you know, so my plan was that ah, the collection's essentially done. I would have to just write a couple of stories, and that would give me time to work on this other novel. Um, and what ended up happening, in part of the, the short story collection pitch, I actually tried to make it a little bit more enticing for them, because I know, you know, large publishers 
really don't publish very many, you know, short story collections, um, at least the genre ones. Um, and, and I know that, you know, they don't sell as well as novels. So I wanted to try to, you know, I knew that going in, I wanted to make it a little bit more enticing for William Morrow. So I told them, you know, my idea was, I would call it growing things because I would include the story, the actual short story growing things that I, that I used in reference in A Head Full of Ghosts because that existed as a short story prior to the novel. But then I would also write stories that, one story that served as a prequel to Disappearance of Devil's Rock and one story that took place after the action of a head full of ghosts just to you know because i thought oh, yeah. that might you know make it more interesting or more palatable so the funny part was this was spring of april uh spring of whatever it was a couple of years ago in the spring <laughs> uh so I, I pitched her i pictured the collection and i i wrote this like 30 page summary for a novel um and by the time i wrote that 30 page summary i was actually like oh i was dreading like writing the book because i felt like it was since it was so long i already wrote it um and so when i my, my agent loved it though he's like oh this is so scary and like scary that was more of a kind of like this weird adventure thing but whatever <laughs> so when i when he pitched it to my editor who's great she's like a no bullshit kind of person you know doesn't pull punches but you know but very easy to talk to because of that because i know she's always telling the truth um she's like yeah i want the collection but not this novel um and my agent was crushed but i was actually a little little bit wow. i was actually a little bit relieved so I knew that, you know, I was like, okay, I, I, I had done this with her previously with uh, the book after Head Full of Ghosts because I didn't have a book after Head Full of Ghosts. And I spent a summer, you know, going through four or five different ideas before she and I landed on Disappearance of Devil's Rock, essentially. So anyway, Agent was crushed when she rejected the novel. I was kind of happy, um, although I didn't have a novel idea, but I luckily came up with the cabin at the end of the world idea on the plane ride home from LA after being, you know, after having that. Uh, novel rejected. <laughs> so yeah, it's a long answer to the short question where that, you know, I definitely ha had plans or, or reasons uh, for the, the collections, why, is it, why it existed. In addition to, I just wanted to have like a good book of, hopefully a good book of short story collections. I wanted that mainly to serve as a buffer between novels. Didn't quite work out the way I intended, <laughs> but, but here we are. <laughs> but it happened. Uh, well, so I had to write Cabin first. They wanted to publish the novel first, which was fine. So I did. Um, and I did have a year in between. And I don't know what happened. I mean, I didn't take the year off. I mean, I, I probably wrote about 50,000 words of short stories, two of which ended up in growing things. But uh, I was kind of hoping that I would finish those stories a little bit earlier to start on the novel that I'm working on now, um, which is due on August 15th. Um, and I'm kind of sweating it a little bit. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm getting close. To, I, I'm getting close to the end. Uh, so we'll see. I've never been late before. Knock on wood. So hopefully, and usually I'm like super early. So that's kind of why I'm freaking out a little bit, but it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, tr um, we'll try to talk fast to give you back a few more, a few more minutes tonight. Cause on, you're coming yeah. down to the wire. <laughs> nah, that's all right. I'm done for the day. <laughs> Um, you headed a little bit in this direction. So um, there are two stories in Growing Things that are closely related to A Head Full of Ghosts. Um, you've got the other one that's closely related to, to um, Disappearance of Devil's Rock. How for you personally, and I might just be overthinking this, okay? Mm -hmm. So how big a part of the bigger stories are they for you? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, we've, right. Rob and I, 
actually me. I've talked about Canon a lot on the show, and Rob just kind of rolls his eyes when I do, I think. I can't see him, but it sounds like he's yeah. doing it. Um, like, as a writer, so you have, we'll, we'll go specifically with Head Full of Ghosts, right? Yeah. So there's the Growing Things story, which we know was written years before, and then kind of makes an appearance inside of A Head Full of Ghosts. But then you have right. the, the, the closing story in Growing Things, which is a, a sequel. As a writer, is that like I wrote a fun little story or is that like this is now part of Head Full of Ghosts in your mind? That's a great question. No one has asked that. Uh, hmm. I, I think it's it's not it's definitely not quite as big as the novel, like which still when I think about those characters, it's that's the novel is like the self-contained thing. Um, I don't want to call the short stories like a wink or a nod because they're more than that. Um, and I was definitely nervous when I went to write the 13th temple, which is the closing story and that, you know, catches up with adult Mary after, you know, the book on her life has come out. Um, I'd like to think of them, uh, uh, cause I've actually written one more story that didn't appear in the collection. That was in, uh, issue three of Fangoria, um, which was a lot of fun. That one. <laughs> so the, what the story that appeared in issue three of Fangoria, I actually, the, the story is called Postal Zone, but uh, they let me write it as a as a fictional. Have you guys ever read? Let me back up a little bit. Have you guys ever read Fangoria, the magazine? Not in many, many years. As a kid. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I know well, like, with the fans of the magazine, like, uh, you know, their letters to the editor was called Postal Zone. And that's sort of like that. Oh, it was a famous thing because they, they had it in every issue. And sometimes the letters really got cantankerous and people would argue and stuff like that. So. What I did was, you know, in the novel, I mentioned that Karen Brissett, the blogger, uh, I don't want to say too much more without spoiling the book for, you know, anyone out there, you know, listeners haven't read it. Um, the blogger mentions, you know, she has a job at Fangoria. So what I did was I wrote, um, I wrote the story as, as Karen Brissett working for Fangoria, answering letters to the postal zone. Um, and then there's a one, you know, nice. so a lot of the letters are just like goofy. And actually, a lot of the letters are, are discussing what happened in the reality show, uh, The Possession. Um, and then there's like one mysterious letter writer, um, you know, that hopefully makes things a little bit creepy. <laughs> so, so these stories that I, that I've written, you know, I, I might write like one or two more. I kind of feel like these are just like, I don't know, aftershocks or, or little, I don't call them little whispers. Cause I feel like that's sort of like downgrading <laughs> their value or not their value, but I don't know what I, how I'm trying to put it. They're, they're not as big as the novel. I mean, that thing will never change. And, you know, unless I'm, unless I'm about to be homeless and I really need the money, I, I'm not ever going to write a book for a uh, book, like a book like sequel of a head full of ghosts, or at least I say that now in 2019. Um, but I do like the idea of, <laughs> record. yeah, I, I do like the idea of occasionally, you know, the fact that the sisters would tell each other stories. I thought that would be kind of cool to be like, Oh, there's another, there's another Mary Marjorie story to be told or to have sort of like leak out there, you know, cause clearly the stories that are mentioned in the book, aren't the only ones that the sisters ever told to each other. So yeah, it was just sort of like a fun way to, to, to visit that book. Cause I don't know. I mean, it definitely is probably the, you know, the favorite thing that I've written. It certainly changed my career. Um, at the same time, it was really intimidating to, to write as Mary again for the 13th temple, especially, um, but I'm pretty happy with how it came out. As were we. That <laughs> was uh, I, I, well, but 
so this kind of goes into something else we're going to talk about a little bit, but yeah, it's always nice to revisit characters that you really, that you really liked in, in one way or another. So it's something that, um, yeah, I probably, I don't want to say I encourage, but you know, more authors should consider sometimes not being done with a story right. and using, you know, maybe a short story medium or whatever to kind of revisit characters. It's a nice touch for fans. Sure. I mean, and some of it is definitely like, <laughs> I don't know. I think one of the things that I enjoyed about a headful ghost writing, it was me getting to engage with um, horror, the, the genre, both in fiction and in film, engaging in what I liked with it and what I didn't like or, or what I don't like. Um, you know, just be like, actually be direct with the conversation about it. So, you know, I mentioned, you know, if we talk about the notes from the dog walkers a little bit later, I think one of the, you know, hopefully one of the funny things that I mentioned in there is like, you know, it's, it's clear that a lot of horror writers like to have like an interconnected universe, even if they aren't direct sequels to stories, you, you know, like there are so many writers who have, oh, it happened in the same town as this story, or here's a little bit character that was a bigger character from another story. Um, and sort of like to be self-aware with the connections. And I think if, you know, people have read the book, I think they read that and that sort of helps to add to the ambiguity of a head full of ghosts, you know, what's real, what's not. I think it helps to add to that sort of hopefully longer conversation about just horror in general. And, um, I don't know, I, there's, there's so many, I spend so much time talking about, um, you know, my interest in horror as being interested in the aftermath of some horrific event. Like most of my books, you know, there's a, you know, there's the big reveal or there's a, there's like a central horrific event. And I usually try to have that happen at like the halfway point or the two thirds point. And then to me, the really interesting stuff is the aftermath and the ripples and what the characters have to deal with afterwards. So, yeah, I think I always find myself thinking a little bit about Mary in the, because I don't know, those after shocks and ripples are going to be so big throughout, you know, whatever she experiences. It's so interesting. Now you got me thinking about something and I'm really glad that you said the aftermath thing, because like in the general context of talking about like crossing over stories or, you know, or, or building on to an existing kind of um, uh, a, a book, a short story building onto a book. I was just thinking like in that flash of, of when you were saying that, how much um, it's nice to see a follow up to a story, but something really pisses me off about doing prequel work so <laughs> yeah. i don't know what like I, and and it could just be me a, a, as a reader but like i feel like i'd be much more excited to see what's going on after that book that i read right than to find out to have that story built up more to change the context of what i already read it seems a little bit different so um yeah, it's funny that you said that. Yeah, no, it's funny. Uh, I agree, even though I sort of... Um, no, I agree. It's funny, Chuck Wendig sort of kicked up a shitstorm, as Chuck is wont to do. I love Chuck. Get out of here. Uh, talking about... Talking about talking similarly about his thing, like he really you know, doesn't enjoy prequels to something that's you know established and, and, and enjoyed, you know, for a lot of the reasons that you talked about. So it's kind of funny, like I mentioned when I pitched the collection to my editor, I just felt like it would have, like... I was trying to think of a connection to the two books at the time, right? A head full of ghosts. You know, I said, I promised a story in the head full of ghosts sort of <laughs> world. And I said specifically to her, oh yeah, and a prequel to disappearance of devil's rock. Cause I didn't think there was anything else after that, particularly for one or two of mm -hmm. some of the characters. Um, and so like when, when push got to shove, I was like, oh man, like, I don't want to write a prequel. 
<laughs> story. Um, and so, like, I buried it in this big, long, crazy notes from the dog walkers, which um, ho- hopefully it was a fun way. <laughs> but I also, like, I found, like, I found a reason for it to be in there, too. Like, um, again, I-, I have no idea if other people are going to like the story, but, and that story wasn't easy to write, but it was definitely a lot of fun to write. Um, yeah, and ho- hopefully that comes across a little bit in the writing of it. But even, like, that story to me, like, because it's very meta. Uh, in some ways, I mean, that story, when we're talking about aftermaths, is I'm writing about the aftermath of my own experience. Like, what I think about, especially the last few pages of the, of the last note in particular, is really about my fears and anxieties yeah. about, you know, the aftermath of, of me as the writer after these stories are out there. Um, or is there any aftermath? <laughs> um, anyway, I, I promise you some ramble. There's some, there's some good ramble. <laughs> this, is, this is beautiful ramble. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> You've kind of touched a little bit on this, but we probably want to dig a little bit deeper. So notes from the dog walkers um, is, although there are other things that are, we'll say self-referential or referencing stories inside of growing things, notes from the dog walker seems to be highly, highly personal. So I'm sure that it felt like a great idea at the time you wrote it. But how does it feel now that you have all of that out for, for anybody to read? I guess there's some really inner, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking at? Like, yeah. like looking inward at yourself in there that's now exposed to everybody that picks up this book. Um, oh, geez. Now you get me worried. No. <laughs> um, you know, I think some part of that. Now everybody knows that you haven't finished Infinite yet. Well, I, I think, right, this is right. Oh, yeah. Those books that were pars- listed as partially read, those were admissions on my part. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of the story itself is like the fear or anxiety of like how much, you know, how much I've already let just, you know, random people into my life. And, you know, almost as a metaphor for, you know, social media, like, you know, you know hopefully for the reader, that's sort of part of what they pick up is like, you know, I think the anxiety builds early because wait a minute, you, you have these strangers that come into your house to walk a dog. Um, but you know, as you mentioned, I think that, you know, how much do they know about your life? Like, you know, hopefully that story could be in one level about, you know, anyone that comes to your life, whether it be like, you know, how much information you're putting out online, how much you're doing with Twitter, et cetera. So I don't know. I, um, I feel okay. I mean, I, I feel like that story isn't, isn't more autobiographical or isn't putting more out there than a lot of some other things that I've read. Um, it's funny. I spent it was two week two weekends ago. I was at ReaderCon, uh, which is a convention just outside of Boston, and Stephen Graham Jones is one of the guests of honor. Um, and I, I got to interview him. And it was a great it was a great honor. And we spent some time talking about how when I first met him in person, way back in like two thousand eight or nine, I'd known him online for a little bit, but like for like three or four years in a row, well, the, the first stack of books I gave him to sign, like one of them was Demon Theory. And he wrote in it, this is, this is my most autobiographical work. <laughs> and then every time after, so we became friends and every time he'd finished something, he's like, yeah, this book's pure autobiography. Every time. And at the time I didn't get it. <laughs> I, I didn't get it at all. Particularly like, you know, the, you know, some of the wild stuff that he writes about um, and how different everything is. But I feel like as I've gotten better and older as a writer, I, I definitely understand that feeling a little bit more. Even though, like, I try, because I use my family a lot and stuff. Um, and, 
I understand it's hard for them to not see themselves in things or, or friends. Um, I don't, I see these, you know, people that have bits of people that I know and most everything has bits of myself in it, but it's still in my head becomes something and people that are totally different. So I can understand like my family having a hard time with that. But, um, but I also think I now get what, what Stephen talks about when he says, you know, this is pure autobiography. And he even admitted like, if he ever feels like he gets stuck, he just goes into his life and takes something. Um, which I think is really cool and something I, I plan on and plan on using. Even though I've already been doing that, I plan on using it even more. Sorry, family and friends. You're all going to be in there. <laughs> he said something. Um, I don't remember. I'm not going to quote him exactly, and I feel bad about that. But um, I think it was when we were talking about his book, The Least of My Scars. I think we interviewed him around that yeah. time. And um, he, like he contextualized for me. And then once he said this about this book, I thought, well, I can see this in every book he writes was that like, he wanted to like, basically there was something that he thought would scare him and he just decided to explore it. So like the idea of the book was something that was scary to him. Right. And so he wrote that scary thing. And so for him, it was almost like he was not working through a fear, but like just seeing, like exploring it to understand it better. And so, Sure. If you if you didn't hear him say that, you never would have guessed it from the book. But at the same time, now I kind of see all of his books a little bit like, well, it was, you know, Stephen doesn't like zombie sharks too or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think part of it also just comes down to, I don't know, uh, I don't want to speak for Stephen, but like I, I know him pretty well. I think in some ways our work can be a little bit similar and that I feel like we're both trying to figure out the truth as we know it. And that's not to say that I, I know the truth uh, about everything. I mean, I, I spend most of my life writing about ambiguous events and you know whether things are real or not. But to me, that's a kind of truth. Uh, the sort of the mutability of of reality and memory and, and identity. Um, and that's not to say I necessarily go into a book with, oh yeah, this is the truth that I'm going to write about. And I don't know. The hope is that when you finish the story, that story is this. That story represents this thing that's a truth. And if, I think to me, the best stories, and I'm not saying that I, I always do this successfully, my hope is that my best stories, just like the best stories that I've ever read, um, but I, I can point to that story and say that story is a truth. Like, I can't describe the truth in any other way than what happens uh, emotionally in that story. You have done a great job of leading us into our pre-formatted questions. So I, I really want to congratulate you on that because a lot of times yeah. you have to figure out get back to this but literally you're going and i go yep that's going right into what we want to talk about next so let's talk about mr ambiguous horror so this came <laughs> up and, and well the nice thing about this is, is so for anybody who doesn't get it first of all read notes from the dog walkers it's one of the best short stories i've read in a really long time oh, so man, i want to seriously second um if you didn't get it there's a lot of self-referential stuff in there which is what makes it a great story and i don't think you need to be you know a paul tremblay fanboy to enjoy it i think that it's it's all there both ways right so i think there's stuff in there like if you if right. someone follows you that they're going to get but i think it's great as a standalone story if no one's if for someone who's never heard of you well thanks yeah i mean that's the whole yeah i was i'm sorry to interrupt i was saying yeah that's the hope i certainly even though there's self-referential stuff i tried to make it somewhat universal or at least you know, something that people would recognize from other authors they've read. The thing that's great in there is that you um, acknowledge that you know that you're a mystery ambiguous horror, um, which is good because for some of us, we're never sure. 
knows that about yeah right? <laughs> like you read a book and you're like i don't know if this person knows how how ambiguous this story is so <laughs> i guess my my two questions around that are first of all is it intentional do you set out to do it that way and then second of all do you feel that it requires more work than somebody who's less ambiguous about their stories so um because the first is yeah definitely intentional although I mean, early on in my writing career, it wasn't necessarily, um, it was something that sort of dawned on me later. But I mean, the whole idea of a head full of ghosts, once, you know, when I first had the idea sort of crash into me, I was really lucky with that idea that it just, you know, it's, it's really the only like Eureka, one of the few Eureka sort of moments that I've had that I think writers dream about. Hopefully every writer gets one of those in their career. I definitely got mine. Um, but, you know, so my idea originally was like, oh, I'm going to write like a secular skeptical exorcism novel. But like once I got into it, I was like, no, uh, I mean, I definitely want that as an element to it, but I'm going to have to play it totally ambiguous and try to, you know, balance, you know, is she possessed? Is something supernatural going on? And have it totally balanced with no, nothing supernatural going on. Because that really became sort of the theme of the story. Um, now, when I got into Disappearance of Devil's Rock, the, the, the next book, um, I wasn't sure what that story was and like, but I, I wasn't thinking, oh yeah, I definitely want to do like an ambiguous thing again. Um, but the deeper I got into that book, I was like, oh crap, <laughs> it's sort of doing this ambiguity thing again. But by the end of it, I was like, well, it's okay because I think it's, you know, it's not a sequel, but I think it's cool to have like this thematic link. Um, and by the time I, you know, when I had the idea for the cabin at the end of the world, I was fully on board thinking again, that's three, you know, they're not the three books aren't, they're, you know, certainly not like a series of books, but I, I like how the three books are all about, you know, different, you know, different families in crisis, you know, whether from internal or external forces. And I like how ambiguity plays this big, you know, central thematic role with the cam at the end of the world really sort of pushing uh, the ambiguity to like out to its most like metaphysical space. Um, but I also know I can't do it forever. I mean, that's part of. <laughs> Some of the anxiety that I explored in that story, I so, so, you know, people, people will get sick of it, um, and I don't want to do it forever, like because it, it has to serve the story. It just can't be there to be ambiguous for the sake of ambiguity. So the novel I'm writing now has no supernatural ambiguous element to it. Um, but I joke to anyone who will listen that I'm going to fake an ambiguous ending just to piss off the people that don't like it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but no, this this book has no. Yeah, the end. I mean, the end. You will know what had happened. Um, I will say for this book. So, I mean, that's actually a little bit, you know, which is a little bit of. No, I wouldn't say it's making me uncomfortable, but it does feel a little bit new. Because um, even in my little, you know, my detective novels, a little sleep. There's definitely some, you know, ambiguity and unsureness there. And uh, oh, and the second question was, how hard is it? Um, yeah, I don't know if it's any harder than the not. And actually, I, I will I will cop to. I feel like sometimes, and actually, Steve Graham Jones accused me of this correctly in a, a short story or two. Um, like sometimes, like I worry, you know, is it ambiguity? Can ambiguity be a cop out? Like you don't want to commit to an ending. So I, I don't think it's necessarily harder to do the amb uh, to do ambiguity. Because um, I feel like sometimes you can use it as a crutch, uh, particularly in short fiction. I feel like. A, the danger for me is there in the short fiction. I kind of feel like in the larger novels, I have more of a handle of 
why it has to be there. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't put a, a reader through 300 pages of that. That's not to say that the reader is going to like what I did, but <laughs> at least know that I, I was at least know I was thinking about you a little bit, maybe. Uh, all right. So here's my follow up to that. And this is all because I talked to Livius about this constantly. He beats me <laughs> over the head with the way he feels about ambiguous stuff. So like um, uh, in the, the, the book Bird Box would be a great example of like, you have no goddamn clue what these things, what's going on. Um, Livius likes to think that regardless of whether you tell us or not, that you as the author are aware of what the reality mm. is. So, um, it, <laughs> is that something that like, as, as someone who writes so ambiguously, do you have a definitive answer in your head? And obviously you don't have right, to right. tell us that, but like, is that something, or do you also experience that ambiguity? Um, it it's been different, which with the three novels, it's been different with each book. So with The Head Full of Ghosts, I honestly um, totally divorced myself from whether or not I thought something supernatural was happening or not. Because I felt like that was the only way I could I could pull off this, balancing the scale, right? Um, so I, I honestly, when, when yeah. people, I get asked the question all the time, so was she possessed or not? You know, I, I don't, I, I tell them, <laughs> I'm sorry, it's up to you. I don't have an answer for you. And I, there's no one right answer. Um, and in fact, part of the fun for me um, is that there's a lot of people who have a, an interpretation of the ending that I did not anticipate. But um, it's not to say it's not there because they point to some like amazing, um, amazing bits of, of evidence for, for what they think happened, which is just I don't know, so cool to me. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm glad it happens. Yeah, that's with uh, disappearance of Devil's Rock, I definitely feel like I, I feel like there's an answer to what happened there. Um, you know, there's a reference at the end to some. There's a reference at the end to some. I don't want to spoil it because uh, I know no one, hardly anyone. Hardly sure, anyone sure. disappearance of Devil's Rock. But uh, no, I, I definitely have an answer to the end. And when people ask me about the end of that book, I answer them. I, I give them my answer. Um, and my. <laughs> I love answering this question in reference to the cabinet at the end of the world, because uh, people people call me people call me a liar and don't believe me. Um, and again, I can do this without spoiling it. I can a hundred percent honestly tell you that I have not spent one nanosecond thinking beyond the last lines of that book. Oh wow! Interesting. So <laughs> overall, you did not solve either argument, <laughs> which is fine. <laughs> Well, because the, the but the relationship between reader and writer is uh or, or the relationship to the story between reader and writer is differently. So you are you are God to those characters. So I, I like to think that, you know, and I'm taking you at your word, but you know, before this yeah. I said, Oh yeah, he fucking knows exactly what happened at the end of all three of those <laughs> books. So I guess now I, I I can just wonder if somebody knew a little more than than before. I said this, you know, he brought a bird box. Yeah. And I had argued that Josh Mallerman knows exactly what those aliens wanted, what happens <laughs> after the end of that book. And I'll tell you, when he announced sure. the sequel, like screenshot to Rob, and I was like, I told you he fucking knew. Like, that was, my, like, <laughs> you know, because he was really vague about it and stuff. And, and that's fine, yeah. <laughs> because I don't, I don't want anyone to spoil anything. I just, like I said, want to know if the author knows, right. if that makes sense. Somehow that's enough for me. Yeah. Like, I don't need to know. I just need to know if you know or not. 
Sure. Well, like I said, especially in the case of Headful of Ghosts, um, you know, like I said, I, I felt like to do it right, to not like subconsciously give away clues I didn't want to give away, I felt like I had to, to commit to both sides. You know, by the time I got to the cabin novel, um, I started imagining sort of the process of building ambiguity as, you know, to use the N4. Now, the, because it, uh, the parlance of, of elections, which makes me cringe because our elections have sucked so bad uh, for, <laughs> for, you know, more than a handful of years here. Uh, the idea of like, you know, a path to victory in an election. Um, you know, I, if I'm building those two sides of ambiguity in, in cabin, especially, I was thinking, well, I have to build a path for the people to think that, you know, the, the world is possibly ending and I have to build a path for people who think, no, there's, you know, they're just crazies, but, you know, and I have to be able to describe myself a, you know, a rational or a reasonable path to each side. If I can't do that, how, how could the reader possibly do that? Um, you know, and when you're in it, I mean, I, I tend to really sort of focus and zero in on that stuff. Um, yeah, so I mean, I can't speak for, I'm sure every writer's different, so, you know, I'm sure maybe Josh did have those imagined, um, you know, ha, you know, had the, the creatures in his head the whole time, but, um, yeah, I don't know, for me, like I said, with each, it's different with each book, with Disappearance, I definitely have, I, I feel like there's a, a resolution, there's an ending, I know it's, I know it's on those final pages, um, but for the other two, yeah, so actually, I don't know, uh, if you guys are aware, but uh, Cabin at the End of the World came out as a paperback the same day as um, as the, as Growing Things did, and, and with and with the paperback, I included a, a two thousand word like liner notes section on you know the writing of Cabin and some of the Easter eggs, and I definitely write like a, a rebuttal about the ending, <laughs> um, or, <laughs> yeah, and a little bit more like an explanation of you know what I was thinking when I wrote it. Um, so I've also, I posted it on my website slash blog, you know, cause I don't want like people who bought the hardcover to be like, oh man, how come the good stuff's in the hardcover? Yeah. That, that was very cool, by the way, of you to do. Well, thanks. We're going to switch gears a little bit. So we stopped asking about the writing process a long time ago, but um, mm -hmm. it, you mentioned it early on. It was just a little early for us to kind of delve into this. Like, how do you balance? So typically when we talk to somebody I don't know how to say this without saying douchey of your stature, right? So however you want to take that, like they, they've moved into writing as a full-time job. Um, how do you balance your, your day job and, and this amount of, of content that you're putting out? I mean, that's, you know, um, three novels and a short story collection over, I think it's less than four years or maybe just a hair over four years. So that's a ton of output for someone who's working a, a pretty legitimate day gig. How do you balance writing and, 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 teaching yeah well as far as my stature goes i am six foot four <laughs> it's... um anyway yeah just throw that out there that's good that was good well that's funny like yeah well well i mean in terms of like actual like real time writing time like i i i started a headful ghost and it's crazy to think because it seems like i mean it came out in 2015 actually i wrote it in 2013 so so three what three, so i'll be almost done with my fourth novel in six years essentially um, which is still, uh, that is a lot like, uh, and the, the short story collection. Yeah, I guess probably two thirds of the stories I probably wrote over. I mean, actually that's probably too generous. Maybe a half of those stories wrote over those same six years. So, I mean that the, the writing period is a, a tad bit longer than as described, but I don't know. It's weird. Like I, um, 
I don't know any other way because when I started teaching, I started writing. Um, they've always been linked. Um, and it kind of goes with ebbs and flows with sort of the teaching schedule slash season, like the fall, you know, I'm, I'm super busy. So I, you know, I do some writing then, but that's when I'm, I'm my least productive the fall, you know, the winter, I maybe rev it up a little bit. That's still like a busy time for me, but the spring and summer are when I definitely, you know, write more, but, um, I don't know. It's weird. I'm actually, when I think about writing full time, like that would certainly in a weird way be a challenge because I'm so used to having to squeeze in like an hour and a half two if I'm lucky, sometimes just an hour. Um, I'm almost like if I try to write longer than that in one sitting, it, it just stops being productive. <laughs> um, so actually this summer, while I've been trying to catch up on the novel, I've been trying to break it up where I might write like an hour, hour and a half in the morning have lunch, maybe work out a little bit, um, then try again in the afternoon or, or try again at night just to try to build, <laughs> uh, to build up more time. So yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's just, I try to take advantage of the time when I get it. Uh, I feel like I used to be better and actually the bigger time suck now, unfortunately is social media. Um, cause I, I feel like I have to, I have to be on there. Um, I know it has helped sort of build a fan base, you know, just being on there and being approachable and not being an asshole. I'm not saying that I'm a secret asshole, <laughs> but don't, don't, don't let it happen. <laughs> sound that way, Liv and Rob. <laughs> it's going at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> I am a secret asshole. There you go. You put it right in the front. Um, no, I mean, uh, you know, I, I worry about it sort of affecting my writing, you know, all the screen time. Um, I've actually found that harder to deal with. Like, like uh, cutting that out as a not the day job. I've had I'm not gonna tell you how many years is that ages myself, <laughs> but I've had years and years of experience of working around the day job. It's only really been the last like you know three to four years where social media has really sort of taken off, and at least my presence on social media has really gotten larger as well. And uh, I'm not I definitely don't have I don't have an answer as how to best handle it. Um, I'm sort of floundering around and fishing for that answer other than just like, you know, tricks of like putting my phone away, taking off my stupid Apple watch. And, but it's hard. Like it's weird. It's weird just how often my hand just goes into look to, to see what, you know, I got tagged on Twitter or tagged on Instagram or something like that. But uh, to, to go way back to, you know, the, the first question when we talked about it, it was like, you know, what's expected of, you know, someone who's publishing with the, uh, you know, the big five. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are some lucky rare writers who don't have to go online and, and and promote and just be available like Cormac McCarthy. But, you know, most of the rest of us, you almost really have to be on there, which is, which sucks. Because, I mean, so I know so many of us writers, like, you know, social interaction maybe isn't necessarily our best thing. Um, and that's partly why a lot of us went into writing. Um, and it's weird. Um, and I would also say... I, yeah, I've talked to other people about this, but I just sort of come to the realization that like, you know, one of the things I struggle with too is like, um, like random negative feedback. Like I'm okay. Like with my editor and like, you know, people I trust and stuff like that. Um, but you know, like people just start like tagging you on like terrible reviews or like, you know, throw stuff on your Facebook page. It's just, it's just weird. And it, and it messes, it messes with my head. And I sort of came to this realization that, you know, the, those of us who are writing now, like 
no other writers in the history of the written word have had to deal with as much <laughs> response and, and feedback as we do right now. Um, then, and like, and how do you deal with it? I mean, I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I, I try to ignore it as best as I can. Um, finally, like with, with Cabinet at the End of the World, I only read, I've only read one Amazon review. I'm very proud of that. With like the previ previous books, I think I was reading most, if not all of them, which was just flat out insanity. Um, yeah, so I mean, I guess I get little handholds like that, but yeah, social media. <laughs> I mean, I, I do, there's a part of me, I, I love like meeting the people I've met. Like it's, you know, uh, there are, you know, so many cool people I've met because of social media. Um, just like from the writer side of things, it's it's like a necessary evil. I guess almost like most everything like these days. <laughs> so uh, you brought up actually. Uh, I want I want I want you to know that um, it, because we saw um, several times on social media um, the exact thing you mentioned a minute ago uh, the the idea of people tagging authors and uh -huh. negative reviews, and then someone wrote like an entire article about it somewhere. It became like something where, as reviewers. I felt like we, you know, you know, have, have a perspective on that as well. And so part of one of our episodes we talked, I can't remember, oh man, I can't remember when it was, we talked about that, like, um, the, because there's, there's not like a set rule uh, of etiquette for, you know, tagging right. someone in something, but we came to the conclusion that, you know, we yeah. as a podcast have never, the only time <laughs> we've gone, well, first of all, we're lazy. And that helps. So like we automate all of our posts so we don't, you know, right. give special treatment to one person over another unless we're like uh, significantly positive. So like if we're just in love with a book, we'll be like, hey, you know, loved this book and tag the person so that it gets more attention to that person. Um, but yeah, like it, it wasn't something that I really even thought about until uh several different authors had brought it up and then there was an article but um i could see where that would just be like man i don't i don't want to have to deal with that kind of thing right i mean i think the frustration is like you know i'm 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 doing my job by like not purposely going out of my way to read like random reviews online uh you know on amazon goodreads so you know it definitely smacks of being unfair to like to stick it in someone's face and coming from the writer side of things, I, I find it like a really simple breakdown to be like, hey, the compact with, for the writer is you cannot respond to reviews. You can't go out and like go read it like a bad review somewhere and then like, you know, write about the review. I mean, I, I think you could add like a, a writer to that if something is so like egregiously incorrect as far as like factual statements, you know, I, I would leave like an opening for that, which I've never done. It hasn't happened. But, you know, unless like a reviewer is like being just plain old factually borderline libelous incorrect about what's happening in the book, then sure, you know, make it. So that's the pact, right? The readers can't respond to reviews. So you can't stick your negative review in my face. Because if you do, you're breaking the pact. And if you break the pact, I'm going to respond, potentially. And I have <laughs> at times. Uh, and I feel no qualms of guilt about it. Like, if you're going to break the pact, you broke it first. <laughs> they drew first blood, not me. <laughs> and all bets are off after that. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I say that, and I've also like I've only like it's funny like a few times like that I have responded like why did you tag me in this is what I just respond. And most of the times people are like oh I, I, I'm sorry I like your work but you know 
Um, I don't know. I just don't get it's you know, part of it is just the the narcissism that is sort of inherent in social media. And it's not to say I don't experience it as well. Like I think just being on it makes you more narcissistic and thinking about me, 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 how am I gonna use this to you know to get my message to promote my message? So the idea that my review out of all these reviews is so important. My negative review is so important that the author must see this. I just really don't understand <laughs> uh, sort of or that thought process. Beyond, you know, someone just being a dick, obviously that's easy to understand. But I've seen someone explain like, oh, they really should know like what I think about this. Why? Why are you so important that you think the writer needs to see what you wrote about it? I don't get it. Well, it, it's weird because I think people like that almost treat it like an Amazon review on a product, right? So let's say I order an electric toothbrush and it's a piece of garbage. Right. So I go on and I write an Amazon review. And what I'm trying to do is ward other people off from spending sure. 60 bucks or whatever on this toothbrush. Like a negative book review. I don't know if it should like ward people off because it's it's subjective. So. I, you know, we've reviewed books favorably and, and we have the, the luxury of picking what we review. So, you know, we, you know, this is to blow up your ego. We go, oh, Paul's got a new book out. We're going to read that. Like we liked his work, um, you know, and then once in a while you get one where you're like, oh, this was just awful. Right. So you give your opinion. But again, I guess if I'm writing a bad review, I either want to keep other people from from buying a product right. or I want to let the manufacturer know that there are ways that this product needs to be improved. And I, I just don't see putting like treating you like the manufacturer of said shitty toothbrush, which I, I don't <laughs> own a, a bad toothbrush. I actually really right. like my toothbrush, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, I don't see what purpose it serves. That's like, I get it if you're reviewing a product, but yeah. a book in as much as is a product is also art. So for there, look, I'm not going to throw any books out there, but there's some really books I've read that are really terrible and you go and there's still more five-star reviews than there are one-star reviews or three-star reviews for that matter. So somebody finds it sure. a, a value. Yeah. So it's kind of a weird, I don't know. Yeah. And, and to be clear that, you know, I know you weren't saying this, but you know, there, there's nothing wrong with, you know, write your opinion, write negative reviews, you know, just don't tag the writer or the artist or the creator in it. Um, you know, and it's funny as an experiment, especially on Facebook, sometimes where I have responded when someone tags me in something, you know, you know, I essentially just start with like, hey, why, why are you tagging me in this? And sometimes the response makes it feel like, oh, they just, like, as you described, they envisioned you as like this faceless product or, oh, you know, I figured you get this kind of stuff all the time. And it wasn't a big deal. Um, you know, just obviously no thought behind, <laughs> you know, there is actually a person on the other side of it. Again, you know, not to stop putting negative reviews. Listen, I spent the last two weekends railing, not a line, but railing at the conventions about how much I really did not like it. Oh, I really did not like Midsummer, um, <laughs> but I'm not going to go like and write Ari Aster and tag him in Twitter or you know write him a letter and be like, "Hey, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, we'll do it for you." Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think John Lang John Langan's already doing that for me. Oh no, some friend John Langan. <laughs> um, You're the first person I've heard say something negative about that movie. I haven't seen it, so yeah. I have no opinion. All I've seen is really favorable stuff from from writers that I follow. So that's interesting. There's a few of us out there. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've seen a murmur, a murmur, a swell of murmuring about it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I don't want to necessarily bash the movie. Unless you want to find me in person, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I'm going to gracefully uh, step to a different topic then. Uh, we mentioned your stature earlier. Um, wait, how <laughs> tall did you say you were? 6'4"? Six, 6'4", four? Six, four, yeah. Wow. Taller than Stephen Graham Jones. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm 6'2", okay. and like 90% of my life, I'm taller than people. And then they get around you folk, and it's... <laughs> I don't know, it's different. Yeah. But anyway, uh, that's not my question. Um, I want to talk about, so I want to talk about coming up a little bit. So uh, like Livius mentioned a man of your stature. And so you're, you're kind of um, depicted as being kind of like the next big whatever. Um, and regardless of whether you believe that or not, that's kind of some of the, the talk about you. Right. Um, so I, I guess a two part question, um, and you can go with whatever's more interesting. You can go with all of it. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And then also, like, do you feel like you have um, some clout that you can use to help uh, your peers? Like, uh, and, and the example I, I could think of, I can't remember what the interview was, but you said something really nice about Ross Lockhart and Word Horde. Right. And he was just over the moon. He was over the moon about it. He thought it was great that you mentioned him. So, like, do you feel like there's a clout thing going on? And and like, like, is that something that you feel, hey, now I can I can try and help out some of my friends that I, I really value. Um, yeah, it's weird. Uh, I don't know how much of a, a cult thing I have. I mean, if I do, that's awesome. Um, again, to, to sort of come back to some of the anxieties of thinking like, you know, I don't want to ever think like I've made it. Um, <laughs> right. Except I, I think that would be bad. <laughs> and also, like, I haven't. So, like I said, I, like I said, I still have a full-time job. Um, you know, when I do get the opportunities to go, well, and the full-time job is humbling when, you know, I have, you know, freshman geometry students who couldn't care less <laughs> about what I, you know, about the writing part. I mean, they were interested in like, oh, in the possible Hollywood adaptations, but, you know, beyond that, I'm still like their uncool math teacher who gets angry. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny, like, well, I don't know, like, especially, you know, writing in genre, you know, some of the, I don't want to, I don't know how to say this. I definitely, like, one of my, I don't know, one of the things that I really try to to work toward just about horror in general is, that, you know, I've always wanted to promote it. It's part of the reason why myself and, you know, four friends started the Shirley Jackson Awards to promote that horror, like, really good horror is being published and being published widely. Um, so, yeah, I mean, wanting to pay it forward in any way possible has always been a part of, you know, something that I want to do no matter, you know, no matter if it's now or like when my, you know, the second detective model just totally tanked. I don't know. I mean, some of it is selfish. I just, I like reading good books and I want more good books out there. Um, and obviously now I know a lot of friends who are very talented writers. So yeah, I'm more than happy to, you know, to give them a shout out or mention them in an interview because I know that they, they do the same for me. And that's not like a, a pat you on the back thing. Um, you know, with a case of, it's funny, like in, in some ways, I hope this doesn't sound like <laughs> calculating because it's not, but like, I don't know, like two, <laughs> I really, yeah, my, some of my very best friends that I've mentioned, you know, John Laird and, and like Stephen Graham Jones and, you know, other writers like Sarah Lang and like part of the reason why like, I'm really good friends with them because I so respect them as writers. You know, it's not to say I can't be good friends with writers who, whose work I don't, you know, connect to as much, but I also know that is a big reason why, like, I love spending time with them and talking to them. Um, I've been the benefit of many a kind writer, you know, saying nice things about my work. Um, I'll never forget, like, early 2000s when I published a story on 
uh, an old web magazine called philothics.net at the time, which you know paid like five cents a word, which is you know still is unfortunately a huge deal in short fiction land. You know, Pocky Bright said something really nice. I was just over the moon. Um, and a, a writer like Stuart Ornan, you know, essentially taking me on as a mentor, like he didn't have to do that. Like why? Um, you know, so why did he do that? He did it because I don't know. Most writers I know want other people to exceed. I think they realize that you know the rising tide raises all boats. That's not to say I don't ever feel jealousy. I do. Um, I almost lost two years of writing to it. Um, I'm glad that I I escaped that. And we can talk about that more if you want. That was after uh, No Sleep to Wonderland. Um, yeah. So I know, as you can tell, I'm just sort of really like talking around a little bit because I'm not yeah. quite sure, you know, the idea of making it or like the, the next thing. I feel like it's almost, I feel like it's almost like a horror, a horror trap a little bit. I even mentioned that in Notes from the Dog Walker. We're so quick in horror to be like, oh, this is the next big thing. This is, you know, this is a master of horror. Like, who, does anyone say, oh, this is a right, this is a master of literary fiction? Like, you just, you never see that phrase, right? But it comes up in like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it comes up in horror all the time. It's, I'm not quite sure why. And I, and I feel like, especially for newer writers, it's like, man, like, don't, I think like the worst thing in the world you can tell to a writer who's only published like a few short stories, like, hey, this is like the new voice of horror. This is, you know, a masterful, you know, horror story. Like, how, how, do, how do you live up to that pressure after that, especially, you know, if you've only written like a few stories? So, I mean, part of me, like, is like, you know, <laughs> I don't want to be called like the next big thing in horror and then be like, you know, never heard from again. And almost, you know, sometimes <laughs> like a knock on wood kind of thing. Uh, and the last thing I would say to, to end this big uh, diatribe to go into something else, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I feel like there's humbling experiences all around. Just like, first off, like how, you know, compared to the population itself, like how few readers there are. Um, it's so easy to find people who not only have not heard of you, but have not heard of. <laughs> You know, I already mentioned Don Winslow or, you know, I, I've had, it happened a few years ago before King's sort of rebirth with, uh, you know, it and, you know, and everything, now that everything else in, that Stephen is doing is being uh, optioned to me in the film. But I had, uh, I had printed out like the tweet that Stephen had, you know, had said about a head full of ghosts and it was in my room, in my classroom. And there was like a, a freshman, it's like, oh, who's Stephen King? <laughs> Jesus. Um, so it's like, yeah, I mean, to me, that was like, yep. Uh, so, I mean, if, if you ever need to be humbled as a writer, there's no shortage of it, <laughs> particularly as a horror writer. Like, I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, I've been to, you know, a whole bunch of mainstream literary festivals that aren't, you know, just, you know, there for genre fiction. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, and these are like, you know, nice people <laughs> in general. And this, these aren't everybody there, but I can't tell you how many times that, well, I'm at one of those festivals and I meet some other writers and they ask me, now what do you write? And I say horror fiction and either their eyes roll or their fe- their face just like f- freezes up or, or they invariably say, oh yeah, I, I can't read that stuff. And uh, somehow I'm supposed to say, oh yeah, yeah, I, why, why would you? It's, it's such like a weird thing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like it's, it's easy to be humbled. So it's very, I believe me, it's, it's super awesome. Super thankful, like, you know, when an article like in GQ calls you like the next big thing in horror. It's, yeah, I mean, I was dancing around my house when that got published. I'm not going to lie to you. But at the same time, um, there's no shortage of being opportunities to be humbled. 
Uh, I think the reason that um, that came up as a thought in my mind, that's a question I wanted to ask is because, um, you know, seven or, or so years ago, when we first kind of started interacting with you, um, a lot has changed between then and now. Yeah. And so, you know, when, when you, first of all, are friends with someone, but then also like, in addition to being friends with them, really love reading their stuff, like like to me you're you're the most important guy in you know whatever right now so like watching people come up is is a really fun thing to watch and and like you just want them to just keep going up and up and up so um i, I as a podcast we're experiencing a lot of that right now because you know we've been around over eight years right. a lot of the people that we talk to have either stopped writing or have continued to grow to a point where you know, seven years ago, they didn't think they were going to be there. Um, so I, it, for us, I, and me personally, I'm, I'm assuming Livius too, it's just gratifying to watch the people that we believed in um, get more opportunities. Yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you. But no, I agree. Like, I, I feel the same way about, I mean, that a lot of the writers that I've mentioned as, as close friends, I've been friends with them for more than 10 years. And I, you know, all those people that I mentioned have, you know, you know, amazing, well-regarded careers too. So no, it's definitely fun. It's weird to be like sort of the adult writer, to feel like the adult writer in the room, right? <laughs> you know, it's been fun actually going to these conventions. Now that, especially the horror conventions that I'm going to, like these, I'm noticing like, wow, like a lot of these people are a lot younger than I am. When I used to, like when I was first going, I was like, oh, I was watching Peter Straub walk around and Liz Hand and, um, you know, and, and uh, Kelly Link, and even though like we're similar age, but like, you know, I was a younger writer when she had already like established herself. But, you know, I thought of myself as like, oh, I'm the young writer. I'm like, you know, I'm the kid at this place. And um, I don't know, it, it's, <laughs> it's cool. You know, it's not a little like, you know, middle-aged freak out melancholy to think of myself as, oh man, I'm like sort of like one of the adult writers in the room. What the hell is, am I supposed to do now? Um, but yeah, no, I, like I said, you know, I, particularly, you know, in horror, like I, I want it to be taken seriously. Uh, you know, I want it to both, you know, in the cultural discussion, you know, it's not to say you can't write fun horror. Um, but I think it all should be taken seriously. All right. I have spent the last 10 minutes um, getting myself into my ninth grade geometry self to ask this next question. <laughs> okay. So what's going on with movie adaptations? Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, a head full of ghosts. Yeah, so I can't really like, see, like, say a whole lot, but like, I think sure. both a head full of ghosts and cabin are getting close or have the potential to be getting close. Um, I would, I maybe point interested people in the direction of uh, Allegiance. Uh, so there's two sets of producers for a head full of ghosts there's Allegiance Theater and Team Downey. Um, and even I think publicly, maybe like if you if you're watching their <laughs> Instagram, you can see like oh yeah, something's something's brewing because like Allegiance posted like a a picture of a head full of ghosts in a bookstore in LA saying hey you know, love to see Paul's book here you know can't wait for you guys you know to see the movie or something like that or it's getting close yeah so they're starting it's starting to be a little bit of you know I feel like <laughs> momentum finally going going forward with that book because um, they do have Oscar Perkins. Which I, 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 I'm so excited that he's, you know, going to be or hopefully going to be the director for this movie. I just think he's perfect for the book. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like 
you know, without saying too much, uh, that it's getting close. Um, and Cabinet at the End of the World was optioned by Film Nation, um, and they have a screenplay. You know, and they've been going out to directors, so uh, we'll see. We'll see if either of them get made or if one of them gets made. I'd like both to get made. It'd be nice. But uh, those are the two that are, you know, there's definitely movings and shakings happening behind the scenes with those two. Saw that post, but I re-listened to our um, interview that we did with you from Head Full of Ghosts, and it struck me because you had said we were talking about Robert Downey <laughs> Jr.'s production company, and you had said yeah. they've got 18 months. And I literally looked down and I was like, well, that was four years ago. <laughs> so right. Yeah, I was so kind the, of wondering, yeah. like, yeah. Now they have since renewed the option twice. So, which is nice. nice. You know, I get paid each time. I'll say good um, for you. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, they have had it for a while. <laughs> My kids go to college. <laughs> Let's get this damn thing made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> All right, and then kind of back to, to do you just get to go to Stephen King's house now? Is that how this works? <laughs> you just get to show up there for like barbecues? <laughs> oh yeah, we have um, ribs. Actually, he likes grilled salmon. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I have not met Stephen in person. I, I'm definitely looking forward to hopefully uh, having that happen at some point. He's been super supportive, super nice. You know, we do exchange emails. Uh, he's a very sweet guy. He's a very genuine guy too. Like I, like I feel like you can't fake that. And I'm going to tell this story. I, I don't think I've, I haven't told it publicly, but you know, m most of this is out now. But like, I don't know. If you guys know Brian Keene, the, the horror writer. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. So he had, he had a horrible accident where he got like burns all over yeah. his body. You know, just over a year ago. And um, you know, so people are starting like a GoFundMe page and stuff like that. Um, and I had emailed Stephen because I know Stephen knows. I think Stephen and Brian have a relationship. Um, I know Stephen's blurbed one of his books, and you know, and they've certainly talked. So I just wanted Stephen to be aware and just like, hey, would you mind like tweeting out this link because you know people had set up a GoFundMe page. And what I come to find out after talking to Stephen or just you know exchanging some emails, <laughs> I had no idea he'd done this. You know, he has a foundation. I think it's called the Haven something. I, you could look it up, but he has a foundation just for the problem of artists, musicians writers, you know, who, uh, because of our shitty health care in this country, don't have enough health insurance or don't have any health insurance. And he, you know, basically funds this foundation that helps, you know, scores of artists every year. Like they, the board, their board meets a few times a year and it, you know, on their website, you can apply, like if, if you need help from them and they, they award, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to, to, to writers in need. And, you know, and that's like something I, I, I've never heard of that. Like, I mean, I never heard that. I knew Stephen did, has done tons of charity stuff, particularly in his area, but, but, you know, talk about someone who, you know, giving back, you know, to, to writers, um, I don't know, his generosity, uh, just doesn't fail to amaze me. So you're not going to hear a bad word from me <laughs> about uncle Steve. <laughs> <laughs> so after that very a touching story yeah. we're just ham handedly <laughs> going to move into this the most boring question of the entire <laughs> okay uh, episode which is like uh what um what can we look forward to seeing from you next so um i'm almost done with a novel uh its title is survivor song i don't think the title will change because i've made it sort of integral to the story um and i, and I only say that because a couple times like i wrote disappearance of devil's rock without a title which i will never ever ever do again Never gonna write a novel without a title. It was so hard to come up with one. 
And I still don't love that title. I feel like Disappearance of Devil's Rock still kind of sounds like a Hardy Boys fan fiction, <laughs> which isn't a bad thing, maybe. Um, and actually, when I when I was writing the, <laughs> when I was writing the Cabinet at the End of the World, its working title was The Four, um, and uh, my publisher requested that I change that. Yeah, after a little bit of discussion, and I you know I, I thought I kind of had the Cabinet at the End of the World sort of in my back pocket um, as a title, or at least part of the phrasing of it, because if I were ever to write um, which isn't going to happen. But if I was ever going to write uh, a third Mark Genovich novel, my detective novels, like the first one was a little sleep. The second one was no sleep to wonderland. Uh, I had an idea for the third one if they wanted it, but they didn't, I was going to call it sleep at the end of the world. Um, so anyway, so I, the four became the cabinet in the world. So anyway, this novel is called survivor song. Um, and I guess it's sort of my take on a zombie infected story. Um, and it's about a super rabies outbreak in Boston. Uh, or, or should, I should say Massachusetts, not so just in Boston. So these aren't. Oh, sorry, I just slapped my microphone out of my my ear. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's not like you know, rise from the dead zombies. It's you know, it's people who are actually sick with something. Um, so we'll see. Uh, so, like I said, no ambiguous supernatural element. The, the story really focuses on two characters, and it's almost, with the exception of like a prologue and a epilogue and something at the end of the book. The main part of the book is almost real, like a real time story, four to six hours of two characters. And, you know, it's not an apocalyptic thing. It's not the end of the world. Like I, I tell you in the book that, you know, after, you know, things are awful for a few, you know, for like a month it looked like it could, you know, just totally ruin, you know, go apocalyptic, but it doesn't. Uh, Massachusetts goes on, but the story really focuses on the four hours with, uh, a 38 week pregnant woman and her best friend who's a pediatrician. Um, yeah. So it's been a little bit of hard, right? Just because I had to do like medical research and I hate research. <laughs> so I use my, I use my sister. She's a nurse in Boston. She was, she's been a great help. And then I even, uh, emailed my kid's pediatrician, some really awful sketchy questions, <laughs> but he was like, really, he was really excited to answer them. So actually now I'm worried about him. <laughs> nice well very cool i'm i feel confident saying that we'll probably be reviewing that when it comes out um because you have uh not failed to bring um just great literature our way so i think uh we say this and for people who don't listen very often we have like a an internal like pre-approved list and, and your name is always on there like if you have something new like look i swore off I literally swore off collections this year. I said, Rob, we're not doing any yeah. goddamn collections. And he's like, Paul's collection comes out in like two months. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so so well, that's kind of literally where we're at. Yeah. So um, thank you for the great books. And thank you for a great interview. And th I mean, I know you're on deadline for Survivor's Song. And yeah. yet you took what's coming up on 90 minutes to talk to us. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thanks, guys. I mean, honestly, my pleasure. Uh, like I said, it was a nice, relaxed conversation. And you guys, we talked about this off air, but uh, you guys definitely asked, like, I was confident you guys would ask me stuff that other people haven't. You totally came through. <laughs> right, once again, awesome to have Paul on and hear him talk a little bit about growing things and other stories and, and just Paul in general. It was, uh, that was a great conversation. I can only imagine Rob's going to listen to that one like three or four times. He's, I know, like, well, I'm so guilty of that too. Like, I'll, 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 I'll re-listen to stuff way more than probably is 
mentally um, suggested or whatever. I just get the weirdest. Like, I don't know if you understand how this comes across, right? And I don't have an example in front of me, but I'll get a weird random message where you're <laughs> like, hey, in this episode, and I'm like, what the fuck is he doing? He's listening to an episode from three years ago. Like, you know, I, I, I listened to, to our interview with Paul, our last interview with Paul, right? Just kind of get a, is there anything we want to follow up on? You know, that kind of yeah. thing. But you're just like, I was listening to our review of, um, I, I don't know, just some off the wall book. And, I, and I'm I'm like, man, I, I kind of think I remember that book. I mean, obviously we reviewed it and you're like, I was just listening to that episode from three years ago. So I, I wonder what the- I did that like two days ago. I did that on Friday and we're recording on Monday. I did that to you on Friday with the I was listening to the eighth anniversary episode. Yeah. And I made a joke. I made a joke and I thought it was I laughed. I laughed out loud when I was driving in my car listening to that episode. And I felt like I had to tell you that I had laughed at, at myself in an episode uh, is fine i just i wonder what the process is on how you pick an episode let's let's explore this a little bit how how do you decide mm-hmm. that you're going to listen to you know not like the last episode we put up but you know something weird like our eighth anniversary episode was whatever four months ago almost three and a half months ago yeah like how do you come to that conclusion so there's kind of like three two to three reasons that i'll listen to something like um, one is research. Like you said, if we're going to talk to Paul, I'm going to want to bone up on all the Paul stuff that we've put on the podcast before. Um, two is, is kind of archival reasons. So recently I've been building a spreadsheet to end all spreadsheets with lots of information about all of our episodes. And, um, sometimes I get curious about, you know, what happened here and there. And so I'll dig into an episode just to like kind of data mine. Um, other times I'm just like, oh, this sounds like, you know, it, you know, either I haven't paid, I haven't checked out this episode in a long time, or I remember this one being fun and I'll just play it when I don't have anything else to listen to. All right. that That's fair. That makes sense. Not insane, right? <laughs> no, not insane. But yeah, you you get what I'm saying. Like, it just comes so, so off it's the weird. wall sometimes. It's like, what the fuck is he yeah. doing listening to that? It's so, true. Um, I appreciate the Thomas Joyce is still listening through the back catalog. As I am reminded That's again, nice. another way to get reminded of things we did years ago that I have no recollection of doing. Um, Rob mentioned, we're not going to say it, but Rob mentioned an author and he's like, we interviewed this guy with this book. And I, I literally, and I, I hate to say it sounds so douchey. I was like, I have no recollection of doing that. Like I, you could totally <laughs> be fucking with me and I, I wouldn't know. I'd have to actually go back and listen to the episode to find out if it's true or not. Yeah, well. 445 hours of audio will do that to you, I guess. Good Lord. And that's the thing. I don't even get the benefit of like the people, um, what is that called? The short term, like memory loss from like marijuana. Like I don't even get the benefit of like being high all the time. I just, I just, <laughs> just have, get the memory loss. I just have the memory loss. So I feel like, <laughs> you know, like oh, a little no. chipped, I guess. So I don't know. Maybe you should start uh, weed vaping. There you go. I can do that. I don't imagine that's going to make things any better for my memory. Would that be accurate? Mm. I, I think just possibly worse. Um, no, it's just gonna. It's not going to help. But I am going to remember this interview because it was terrific. And um, we have done so few interviews in the last couple of years that we've decided to double up. So our next interview will also be our next interview, our next episode will also be an interview and that's going to be with Matthew McBride. So barring unforeseen circumstance, you're not even going to have to wait a full week. If you come back in just a handful of days, whatever that means, you should be able to hear our next episode, which should be an interview with Matthew McBride, where we'll discuss his latest book. 
Yeah, end of the ocean. Um, excited about that. Matthew is one of those guys. It's just it's a fun dude to talk to. So um, it'll be fun to hear what his real life adventures were that tie into this book. For sure. So uh, that's going to wrap it up for this interview episode of Booked. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading.